0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian. And every week, Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Once upon a time in America, there were department stores. Each city had its particular favorites. Macy's in New York, and only in New York. Weinstock's in Sacramento. Woodrow and Lothrop in Washington, D.C. And Wanamaker's in Strawbridge and Clothier in Philadelphia. But there were many others, smaller perhaps, but even more pervasive, scattered in every good-sized town in America. Lazarus in Middlebury, Vermont. Bergner's in Freeport, Illinois. And the Zambone Store of Vineland and Bridgeton, New Jersey. The department store, its rise and its decline, is the subject of my guest Vicki Howard's study, From Main Street to Mall The Rise and Fall of the American Department Store. Vicki Howard is professor of history at Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York. Her previous book, which is an outstanding read and particularly timely this, uh, this season, is Brides Incorporated American Weddings and the Business of Tradition. Also, both were published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. She is, among many other things, editor of the journal History of Retailing and Consumption, and we're very glad to have her speaking with us today. Thank you, Vicki. Yeah, thank
2: you. I'm very happy to be um, talking with you, Al.
1: So, um, as I alluded to in the introduction, I actually have a, when I saw that your book was coming out and I saw that it was about uh, Main Street department stores, um, I had to talk to you because I have a personal connection uh, to this. Yes, uh, I'm very
2: interested to hear about that. Yeah,
1: um, I haven't gotten autobiographical on this podcast uh, before, um, but uh, my great grandmother, within about uh, ten or fifteen years of arriving in America, um, started to sell, as best as I can make out from family stories, um, sewing supplies um, out of her basically her room, their rooms in an apartment, and that soon developed into. a business, which at its, its height <laughs> was, uh, I guess, r- extremely regional uh, in Southern New Jersey, about four stores, uh, two large mm-hmm. ones and two small ones, um, which sold uh, dry goods. Um, and that lasted until uh, my grandfather closed in about 1965. Um, so I I, I think that, that those dates from about 1890 to 1965, track beautifully with the heart of your story.
2: Yes, absolutely. And um, I guess, were they, were they um, Italian-Americans? They were Italian-Americans, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. Often uh, the early department stores uh, were founded by um, immigrants and um, you know, started in, in a very small scale. Sometimes the uh, entrepreneur was a peddler yeah. who would then get a, um, a storefront and eventually expand and either... Um, have you know multiple units like your uh, grandmother yeah. eventually had and her family had or um you know, perhaps that they they would expand on Main Street and end up with a multi-storied building. Mm-hmm. But um, that's a very familiar trajectory that I'm I, I wrote about in the beginning of my book.
1: Yeah, let's so let's uh, let's start there. Um, it, it does. By the way, it, it, now in new urbanism, there's a great concept, of the pop-up store, which tests out a market. It makes me realize that in an era of really the minim, of absolutely minimal to no regulation of the 1890s, everyone could run a pop-up store. Or yes pedal something see if it, see um, if it
2: although there were um, there were campaigns against peddlers oh, yeah. and against um, street vendors uh, yeah. you know from the mainstream uh, mainstream merchants so sure. uh, I guess they, they didn't go without opposition no, always. No. Yeah.
1: I remember those in the up in the 1970s and 1980s of course in Philadelphia those were quite heated even then about the various mm-hmm. street yeah. peddlers um, let's let's start back in the 1890s 1905. Um, department stores, um, like everything else, have, have a history. Um, when does their history begin?
2: Well, um, actually, historians d- debate um, the origins of the department store, and different countries claim um, origin. Uh, and so it's it's actually not a, you would think it would be an easy question to answer, you know, when did something begin? Yeah, what right. was the first store? But there's not a lot of agreement. I think historians sometimes, um, you know, get caught up on those types of questions, and uh, you know, without spending too much time answering it, I would say that um, it evolved slowly over the period, second half of the 19th century, and was fully formed by the 1890s. Uh, and there was sort of a transitional period, you know, um, you know, in the 1870s. But 18, 1870s and 80s, you start seeing some of the some of the names that we're familiar with now, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and, and some of the names that you mentioned in your introduction. Uh, but um, in the United States, uh, that that's sort of the, the, da- the date. I think um, the French claimed that the Bon Marché was the first department store, and that's from 1869, mm-hmm. and um, England has white leaves, which is also um, earlier than that, mm-hmm. uh, but you could roughly say the, the second half of the 19th century, the, the uh, department store form evolved, and I think the term itself began to be used in the 1890s, before mm-hmm. that it was not used. One of the earliest stores that I write about is A.T. Stewart's, um, which was, uh, he was an, an Irish immigrant and started in the 1840s um, in, in New York City. And uh, his, I guess he didn't really call it a department store, but we can look at it as the origins of, of that. He had many of the features, but was missing one of the main categories that we usually um, associate with department stores and that uh, he did not sell um, he mm-hmm. had it was mostly a dry goods emporium, uh, a departmentalized dry goods emporium.
1: So I guess this this we have to ask the question here: um, What is a department store? You just said it. Uh, they usually,
2: yes, and what are the uh, you know before you had department stores, you had um, single line merchants dominating the scene, meaning that the merchant would sell one line of goods, and um, they would specialize. And department stores were very different in that they pulled together. Many different lines under one roof you know they would advertise as you know having everything under the Sun you know and all the services on top of that and amenities that came to be associated with a luxurious urban But they're still identified with the industry and, you know, subscribing to the trade journals and following all the latest um, merchandising mm-hmm. advice uh, from the industry and belonging to the trade groups and going to New York City to do their buying. And yeah. they're looking forward and they they consider themselves progressive merchants, even yeah. though they may only have like $100,000 in business.
1: Yeah. What's What do they mean by progressive merchants? Yeah. Um...
2: Yeah, that's a word that you see a lot um, associated with the turn-of-the-century sure. uh, merchants. And I think that that meant, to them, it meant modern, um, maybe trying to get away from the uh, dependence on credit mm-hmm. uh, that those earlier country merchants might have had, uh, where they followed a um, uh, policy of open-book open credit, mm-hmm. where you wouldn't settle your account up. Regularly you would you know sort of settle it as you as you could and that's something that's usually tied to a rural economy And It's very difficult to expand with that type of you know debt Mm -hmm. um, And um, lack of capital
1: we should we should uh, Uh, almost underline that point. That's something. I'm always trying to explain to undergraduates um, Yeah, the 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 lack of a cat the fact that there was a credit economy um, Because well the American I'm I'm teaching the American colonies, right? That's my period so that it's a it's a It's officially a cash deprived society under imperial by imperial under imperial rule. So everything works by credit and that extends really up until gold and silver starts flowing from the West in the late 19th century. Right.
2: Yeah. And and the early department stores were cash only businesses and some of the, you know, the the luxurious ones would have special, um, charge accounts they might give to their, to their wealthy uh, customers. Mm -hmm. But, um, Generally, like for example, Macy's was well known as a cash-only store, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that was the sort of a, seen as a progressive way of doing business, getting away from that dependence on credit, and then also following um, you know scientific management techniques, and you know sort using things like the cash register that was seen as a, a modern innovation mm-hmm. that would you know prevent pilfering and. Would um, you know speed up the transactions and and so yes yeah, so these small town merchants started to you know, identify with the industry um, in, you know as professionals in the field and um, you know get a little bit away from sort of their their country store roots. Did,
1: um, was there a, in, a, in
2: smaller towns
1: an emphasis on on hygiene or cleanliness or I mean the, that seems.
2: Um, pretty- well, That the brand, the brands that were that that, um, they advocated in in, in their grocery departments, for example, or this would be maybe more applied to the uh, stores that had grocery lines. You know, they made those kinds of appeals that you would have packaged goods Mm -hmm. rather than bulk goods that could be contaminated. You know, Mm -hmm. by handling. Um, And department stores actually advocated uh, private brands though over national brands. Um, they, they they eventually you know had their own they came up with their own brands to to um, you know uh, I guess pull pull people in um, pull customers in and you know you would get to know that for example later on Sears was known for the Kenmore brand that's sure. their own private brand and also to compete with the um, uh, national brands that sometimes had price. Um, uh, suggested retail prices that they were that they had to follow. They could get around that by having their own brands mm-hmm. rather than following the ones that the national manufacturers were pushing.
1: Yeah, I, the only department store, I mean, uh, and I, inc- I mean, the sort of, that reminds me of the of these that I, I I've ever been to is Marks and Spencers in England. Um, yeah, and that is where you'll have everything under t- in two stories and re- relatively small, f- certainly a very small footprint by modern American standards. Um, yeah, but it's what they're promising you is this is the best possible that you can buy of anything, um, and that's you know still their reputation that, that they try to cultivate in in Britain. Um, yeah, this is where yeah, you, get, you only one scrub brush in the small departments in the small grocery section of the department. It's going to be <laughs> the best scrub brush you can possibly get. All right. And that's what the department stores did from the very beginning.
2: Yeah. Yeah, um they, you know they were, it was uh, I'm amazed at how many uh, lines of goods that they these early department stores had. In my book I have an illustration from um Hilton Hughes and Company that just lists uh, the departments that were in this 1890s New York department store and you know they it, it it dwarfs what we have in our stores today. Mm-hmm. That um you know we're it's like looking at those Sears catalogs from the turn of the century, yeah. and seeing you know the, the massive amounts of, um, of of goods that were available, you know, in the Victorian period and the early 20th century. I actually think we have, we have fewer. I think we almost have you know fewer choices, even though on some levels we have more choices, but. Yeah. Um, like if you're looking for, looking at silverware from that time period. You know, there's a specialized piece of silverware for every single yeah. uh, imaginable thing, like an asparagus fork, or a pickle <laughs> fork, or a strawberry spoon, berry spoon.
1: Yeah, that, which is uh, that's that's a puzzler right there. The strawberry spoon. Uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize levels of specialization had gotten uh, that far in tableware. Um, so they were replacing these uh, single, uh, you, the single line merchants. They were being they were being destroyed um, by the
2: well. They, of they the were challenging store. them, that's for sure, sure. Um, because they could undersell them. Um, they could, because they they had uh, the department stores had economies of scale. They were able to uh, you know run their biz- business in, in efficient ways and, and have access to. Um, quantity discounts from manufacturers, and they could centralize various functions of the store in a way that a a mom-and-pop business wouldn't be able to do. And they could, um, you know, offer lower prices to customers as a result. In addition, they could compete with uh, amenity and, you know, luxury in a way that a smaller store couldn't. And so the smaller single-line merchants objected to um, department stores, and there was actually something, you know, People have called the store wars in the, in the uh, late 19th century, uh, where there were protests against department stores. And they were sort of the Walmart of their era. Sure.
1: This would seem to be part then of the um, of uh, how shall we say it's part of the an an epiphenomena of the business cycle um, that, that this, yeah. this is going on. It's a, but it's also a part of a social and cultural cycle that's attached to the business cycle.
2: Yeah, and, and they're not the same. They occur in different contexts. And they right. have you know some they have different meaning as well tied to the tied to the specific circumstances of the of the period. But. Um, I think
1: that it's interesting to see some of the parallels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, absolutely. and also, I mean, and, and I've been struck by the similarities of um, the uh, arguments, uh, controversy, or Amazon uh, with that with with Sears and uh, and all and Montgomery Ward and all the other catalog firms. Uh, yeah, back at the
2: same in the same period. Yeah, and and um, there were efforts to you know contain that yeah, through legislation. And, and there were um, efforts in the past as well to try to contain uh, this uh, these developments with legislation
1: yeah um, the um you uh, point out that uh, we have a nos- in the nostalgia these are all very unique places that are very uh, rooted in their particular city or their community um, but their holding companies emerge very early on uh, talk about that please
2: um yes i I, I guess I, I'm making an argument that um you know, we're nostalgic for these downtown department stores that um, that are not, with us no longer. And we see them as you know, local institutions because, you know, they originated in particular cities and mm-hmm. their nameplate. chain department stores were 17% of their market. Uh, so already, you know, even in this sort of heyday of the local department store, the independent department store uh, that's downtown, it's run by its founding family, you still already have 17% of, of those are multi-unit, mm-hmm. and after World War II, about 50% of the department store market um, consisted of, of chain department stores and then uh, when you switch to the 1970s yeah. um there was you know even greater consolidation just three of the big chain department stores Sears um, Montgomery Wards and JC Penneys those three chains alone in the mid 70s made up about oh, about 40 43% of department store sales wow. then wow. and by the by the 80s it was almost 100% about 97 98% of department stores were chained by the early 80s mm-hmm.
1: But the this was a an, an ending uh, pressure to create an economy of scale, um, mm-hmm. which yeah. is the was at, which of course goes with the very logic of forming department stores in the first place. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's back up a little bit. How did they change the downtowns of American cities? The the very fa- the fact of those department stores. Well,
2: uh, department stores are urban institutions. Uh, you know, the biggest palaces of consumption in the 19th century were in major cities like, you know, like Marshall Peels in Chicago and um, Philadelphia and then in New York City, Boston. Uh, and there were, you know, all different ways of, um, you know, buying goods in big cities, but the department stores it would um, pull in a, a, so much trade that they would shape the business districts of those cities. And... Pretty much, uh, other retailers and other kinds of businesses would follow them. So they create, you know, fashionable retailing districts. And when they move, the the, the retail district follows them mm-hmm. and moves moves with them. So, so they have a sh- an effect on the geography of the um, their, the commercial geography in that way. And. Uh, so they're urban institutions, and they spread to smaller cities and then small towns even. As you mentioned earlier, about 1900, uh, main streets across the country would have something that would be called a department store. And mm-hmm. again, these would um, you know, offer a lot of competition for smaller, smaller stores, but they would also provide a real center for people to go and socialize and eat at the restaurants yeah. and um, spend their free time, because department stores were not just a place. From the very beginning, they featured tea rooms and restrooms
1: I mean, as a small child, I remember the Wanamakers that existed before the, um, well, it had already begun the endless series of mergers that would eventually lead to its uh, collapse. Um, and, uh, it, I, and I remember some of those, The things would always change after each merger. They would get a little, get a little worse. Uh, but I remember, the, of course, the dizzying variety of, of different stores within the store. I mean, it was like being in a sh- modern shopping mall. Um, yeah, because they're well. Old. You're
2: mentioning Wanamaker, and that, uh, they were known for their organ.
1: Yeah, abso- absolutely. They would
2: have concerts yeah, too, with, for people. Yeah,
1: yeah with the Christmas light them. show. I mean, it's like that's yeah. the chief event of a of a child in the Philadelphia area was going into Wanamakers to watch the Christmas light show. Um, yeah, I still do it, um, and they haven't changed that. It's still there. Yeah, in, in, and sense. you know,
2: in the 1920s, they all had um, radio stations. Yeah. They 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 would put a radio station up at the top of the store, and so some of the earliest broadcasting um, came out of department stores, and they would um, have you know they would develop programming that would.
1: uh, That's right. That's the first station in Pittsburgh. So it it was direct marketing of the of the earliest variety.
2: And then you could also go to the department store to buy a radio <laughs> with which to listen to the radio station.
1: <laughs> so um, so these are, they become uh, hubs of the, and so they're becoming, they're actually representing the downtown to the entire uh, metropolitan area around it. So they're becoming a regional center as well as a city center.
2: Yes. I think people would come in from the country to yeah. you know, to uh, shop and um you know, there, and I, I'm also I, I'm sort of emphasizing their inclusivity, and there, you know, people have talked about the democracy of goods that were created by these department stores. They were able to lower prices, and mm-hmm. they had bargain basements. Like Filene's bargain basement uh, was founded around 1908, 1909, yeah. and um, so you know, even people of lesser means could afford them. But at the same time, um, you know, there were limitations, I think, oh, yeah. to that democracy, and um, you know. Mostly in the South, but also in the North, uh, I think uh, department stores, like many other uh, public places, uh, discriminated against people of color. Oh, and and um, so and, you might'd yeah. be able to go to the uh, tea room and to the rest- restaurant if you were white, but if you were African-American, um, you would probably be turned away. Yeah. And so I also in my book, look at the um, I look in the 1950s and '60s at the protests that center on department stores. Uh, as places of, uh, of segregation for shopping, but also as places that segregate in terms of employment. Mm-hmm. And there were campaigns that, you know, Rich's uh, department store, um, Foley's department store, Thalheimer's, yeah. uh, Miller and Rhodes, um, you know, all the major stores in the South uh, had to change um, their ways uh, as a result of, of um, African American led civil rights movements. And um, sit-ins, and um, and then to comply with the law, you know, sort of slowly they they made some changes after the Civil yeah. Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, the um, yeah. But Woodrow- they do have a, a sort of a, a history also of of discrimination and segregation.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, Woodrow and Lothrop in uh, D.C. wouldn't take Jewish customers. Um, yeah,
2: although a lot of a lot of department store merchants were German Jews. So,
1: yeah. so that's yeah. always that always fascinated me that there are a few that that wouldn't. Um, the, uh, what? What's the, the role of uh, the new deal to the department store?
2: Yes, I have a, a chapter on the, um, I, I go chronologically and in the, because I think that every era um, posed new challenges for the department store industry uh, in terms of, you know, what, what consumers wanted, what the business, how the business was developing, and then I also look at the role of, of, of state and federal and local policy in shaping the industry. Yeah. And in the 30s, um, you know, the the depression um, you know really um, cut back on department stores, uh, markets, obviously, uh, but also um, the uh, department stores were t- sort of um, at first, supportive of some some of the policies like the um, the NRA, but then quickly turned their back on on the NRA and FDR and uh, sort of fought some of the um, regulations that were coming out of the New Deal. Uh, so I look at that I look at that period as a sort of a period of negotiation where the industry is you know which is traditionally uh, quite conservative and opposing. Um, what they call government intervention, uh, they're they're learning to sort of deal with with a larger state and um, ac- accommodating it to begin with, and then maybe also turning their back on it.
1: Yeah, or, what, or engaging in uh, what the economists would call rent seeking behavior with uh, way, <laughs> ways of trying to uh, preserve their status. Which uh,
2: yeah, and in, in World War II, that would it would become even more the case uh, with the Office of Price Administration. Uh-huh. Um, with the uh, limits on on prices, um, department stores who like to set their own prices uh, had you know they had to comply with the regulations and um, you know, but at the same time they wanted to support the war effort and they did a lot to support the war effort, engaging actually in um, you know war bond campaigns yeah. and uh, and also to, uh, contributing a lot of labor, a lot of um, leadership. Um, during the war came out of the department store industry
1: yeah what um, my father in fact uh, one of the stories used to fascinate me as a as a kid when during the the war when he was a my father was a small boy um Wanamaker's on their eighth floor which I knew as the toy department um basically I don't know how the world in the world they did this but they moved a base a variety of fighter aircraft up to the eighth floor and oh it, you, you could walk around and sit in them. And I think that every day uh, they would have tommy gun uh, demonstrations and someone would fire a submachine gun into an enormous bale of cotton at the end of it. Really? Fire. Yeah, much to, to the delight of every uh, all children present, I guess.
2: Yeah. That. Uh,
1: I mean, this is... It, it, it gets to their... I guess that role that you describe of them um, trying to be leaders of the war, the war propaganda effort, the war mobilization effort, and all the rest of it.
2: Yes.
1: Um, so then... The car, the suburb, um, which seems to me is uh, the, the the department stores uh, are pushed. They reach into the suburbia. Um, I, I guess looking back, that seems to be a, a moment of that. Well, looking back, we know that's a moment of profound change. Um, and maybe the beginning of the end. Um, how do you see that? Uh,
2: yes. Um, I mean, the automobile um transforms the commercial landscape uh, you know in many ways and uh, it, it affects um, it, many of the cities that were of course you know built as uh, pedestrian cities or you know were not easily able to accommodate cars um, they were parking was always a challenge uh, for these retailers and uh, the the rise of the branch store in the post-war period uh, is in part a response to what are perceived as uh, the, the Lack of parking in the city, as well as um, a perceived, uh, you know, lack of um, or, or a sort of decline of, of a decline of, of, of cities uh, and people's interest in—I should say—white middle-class consumers' interest in living in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so department stores are seeking that market, and they follow um, the demographics. You know, they go out to the city, out of the city, into the suburbs, into the shopping centers that are, are springing up all over the um, country. And um, so I, I look at uh, the effect of suburbia on department stores. On, um, and the branch stores, when, first, um, when they first start going to the shopping centers, um, they're seen as a, sort of a way to add on to the parent store downtown. They're not seen as a competitor, although it becomes quickly apparent that they're pulling away from the downtown, so the downtown stores, um, those 19th century stores that had long been the focal focus of their of their um, of shoppers, they um are um they lose market share, mm-hmm. and the uh, industry starts to pay less attention to them. You know, and the facilities uh, start to decline, and the new shiny uh, suburban stores are seen as um you know the the new Form of retailing, sort of mm-hmm. a new innovation, and at the same time we have uh, discount stores appearing in the post-war uh, World War II period, and those are also competitors for um, department stores in this uh, in this era, and that um, also changes the you know market mix. Uh,
1: what are the names of some of those discount stores?
2: Oh, um, Corvettes with a K is, is a major uh, major one.
1: Oh, yeah. literally
2: it's like two guys I remember that one yeah <laughs> yeah and um, but uh, some of the, the ones that we' most familiar with today were founded in 1962 target mm-hmm. Kmart and Walmart were all founded in 1962 mm-hmm. and um, that was sort of a real heyday for the for the discount store um,
1: it, it seems to me there's also some changing patterns of consumption as well um, I know that my uh, my great grandmother's store, my grandfather's store, uh, there were dry goods stores, uh, but they were it was um, aimed at women who were able to sew, um, um, uh, make their own clothes, and yeah. that's uh, the ready to wear market. They they had ready to wear stuff, but they always had lots and lots of, of of raw materials, as it were. But of course, that's changing radically after the war.
2: Yeah um and well there was sort of a uh, a resurgence of home sewing i think mm-hmm. in the post war period okay. um, so i mean ready to wear yeah for women um, was a, a you know major um, department line for, for for these emporia uh you know starting in the uh, in the teens and for men earlier uh, men's ready to wear was um you know, much earlier than women's women's clothing was closely fitted and mm. difficult difficult to ma- mass produce.
1: Yeah, we, we don't. So
2: there was a lot of home sewing and dressmaker um, sewing yeah. you know, for women's fashions in the early twentieth century. But um, you know, so ready-to-wear was fully in place by World War II. But I think in the post-war period okay. there was a resurgence of home sewing, right. and so those those dry goods sections and notion sections were mm-hmm. probably quite popular. Yeah. And that, that was what your your family store specialized in, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so it's a so post-war resurgence. All right, that's interesting. Um, the um, discount revolution. That's so that starts to drive um, wh- that.
2: that's well, it really worries the department store merchants because they're they're starting to lose their um, their hold on the market. And so, like in the nineteen in late nineteen twenties, uh, that's when we have the first business census that really keeps. Keeps track of these kinds of things. It's hard to have statistics for earlier periods, but mm-hmm. uh, the Department of Commerce expanded in the in the 20s, and all did all kinds of really handy studies for historians to use to look at business, um, the status of business in that period. In 1929, uh, department stores had about 14 or 15 percent of of the total retail trade, and that dropped down in the depression to about 10 percent. Um, but then um, it uh it continued to decline and so um it was a result of, of new forms of, of retailing that would be on the scene in the post war period um and also um downtown stores lost out to the branch stores in 1966 about half of all department store sales were made in branch stores so the downtown venues are, are losing out um and then um you know by 19 by 1980 um Discount stores have really, uh, you know, the major ones that I mentioned found, mm-hmm. that were founded in 1962, Target, Walmart, and Kmart, uh, really had made inroads and had a lot of growth in the 70s and 80s. And in 1980, for example, um, only 40% of total department store sales were made by those conventional, traditional department stores. The rest were made by discount department stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so sort of a tipping point. And um, it, if you want to look at the total percent of retail trade, department stores, the conventional ones, I should say, had only about 3% of the total retail trade. So it, they went from their heyday you know, in the 20s to having 14 or 15% of total retail trade to about
1: 3% uh-huh. by 1980. And so this is the long, drawn-out... Uh, yeah, and, that,
2: and since the 80s, it, it's, even, it's even gone down further.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it, and now we're in a position where... I guess Macy's is the one remaining. Would that be right? Uh, sort of. Yeah,
2: well, Macy's is the um, largest department store chain. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the United States, and it is it is a chain. Uh, chain means just means multi units. Sure. Um,
1: and I mean, and the, certain ones like Nordstrom has made the decision to go completely upscale. Um, yeah. And, uh, and in some ways exist still as a, a micro, well, they're, they're smaller than their traditional downtown department store, but they've maintained that sort of feel. Um, and there's Macy's and then I guess there's everybody else.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's, uh, I would count JCPenney's, Penny's, okay, um, sure. as, you know, a, a department store and that they're also, uh, uh, suffering.
1: Yeah. Deeply troubled at the moment. Um, so whats uh, what should be our takeaway uh, from this, um, this story? Um, you are throughout the book trying to correct our nostalgia and um, for these department stores and correct it with some historical facts. But how should we uh, think his- think historically well, um, about the department store?
2: Yeah, I mean I think that my, you know, I think my book is, is a, a comment on on capitalism, you know on the nature of capitalism. You know, using the department store as a, as a lens to look at that, and um, and I think that uh, you know, my argument is that uh, you know things happen uh, for a reason. They don't just happen because it's some sort of rational sort of evolution, or it's an or or it's some natural natural development. I, I would not argue that as an historian. I look at contingency and paths not taken, and um, I try to historicize things and. The story of capitalism that emerges in my book is that um, things happen, you know, because various decisions and choices are made along the way. And the major players in my book are consumers um, and the businesses themselves, you know, the the management policies. And then also uh, what I'm really adding to the historiography is a a call to look at the role of the state and the role of – what I mean by that is the role of of government policies in shaping – the status quo and shaping you know the world that we live in mm-hmm. and uh, throughout the, that interplay of those three historical actors that the state business and consumers has led to uh, both the rise and the fall of the American department store yeah. and my, my book details that uh, throughout the decades yeah I, leading us up to you know pretty much the present day
1: it's, it's very striking I mean Walmart's just don't happen because they're cheap. Um, there's, yes, uh, the, the, exactly, the, and the if, outside, one way to yeah.
2: test that is to look at other countries to, to see how things played out differently.
1: Right. I mean, the um, when a town puts in a Walmart, they're putting at least $500,000 of infrastructure in front of it. Um, the um, And I, I know from, uh, from other discussions I've heard or been part of that, uh, you know, Walmart, when they speak to sort of professional appraisers uh, meetings, which I, I can't imagine ever going to one um, academic conference, mm-hmm. academic conferences are bad enough, but uh, <laughs> they're trying to argue you should only appraise us for a lifetime of 10 or 12 years um, because that's as long as the store is going to last.
2: You mean the building itself?
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah,
2: yeah. I that, know there are all these big box stores and empty, or cavernous warehouses all across the country. And that's
1: a that's a that's a part of the business plan, um, but it requ- yeah. it requires an act of the local government or of the state government or federal government in order to allow them to do that. Um, yes. this so rent seeking behavior uh, has gone on for quite. Uh, it's been part of the entire business history of the of the department store and then of the discounts. Yes.
2: Yeah goes um goes
1: very far back yeah what i'm saying yeah well i think we've come we we have uh come to the end of our time uh vicki howard this has been absolutely fascinating well thank Uh, you the book is from main street to mall the rise and fall of the american department store and it's published by the university of pennsylvania press is it not Mm -hmm.
2: Yes,
1: and it is hot off the um, the laser printer or whatever they <laughs> you, you, whatever they use. Yeah,
2: it just it came out last week.
1: Okay, well, best of luck with that. And uh, thank, thank
2: you. I appreciate you having me. And
1: thank you again for talking with us. Yes. Bye. Right. Goodbye. Bye. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically thinking is recorded. In the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leimbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.